understanding just on a fundamental basic level how this world works just puts you in a really great position to ask the tough questions through your art, to do the tough things in your art. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be hearing from author, educator, and dramaturg, Martine Key Green Rogers. Now, as a former dramaturg myself, I know how few people out there actually know what a dramaturg is and does in the theater world. So, rather than attempt to explain it myself, I thought I'd let our guests describe the profession herself. At the base of what a dramaturg does, we we essentially help either designers, playwrights, directors, etc., write and tell the best story they can tell. And so some of that is by asking questions in the room. Some of that is by asking questions of the playwright. It's really like we have to be really familiar with varying types of dramatic structures and varying modes and genres of the presenting of plays in order to be able to really say like, if this play lives in this genre, what is the best version of this play in this genre when we put it on stage? So really asking the questions that need to be asked, really think, I think part of the work is about being quality control. Some of it is about being a continuity person. Some of it's about just asking the questions that need to be asked of the the producing organization, because I think that's an important part of the work that I do. But all of this is in service of telling the story. So none of the questions that I asked are based in my own ego. None of the questions that I asked are based in anything besides like, let's poke at this thing and make sure we are telling the story we meant to tell. And if at any point we've decided that we need to be telling a different story, let's be clear about what that story is so that we're all on the same page. Well, there it is. Now you know what a dramaturg is. Martine is, in fact, a well-respected and sought-after dramaturg with decades of experience having worked at theaters all over the country, from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival to Houston's Classical Theater Company and Chicago's Court Theater. She's also a past president of LMDA, the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America. This past summer, she took a leave from her position as Associate Professor in the Department of Theater Arts at the State University of New York, New Paltz, to become the Interim Dean of the Division of Liberal Arts, or DLA, here at the School of the Arts. Martine spoke to me from her home in Winston-Salem. I wanted to start the interview in an up note because why not, right? So I asked her to tell me what currently makes her optimistic about the state of the American theater. Oh my goodness, that's such a good question because I feel like I have a million and two answers. Uh, One, what, what encourages me is the future generation of theater workers. Um, I find that students and the ideas that they are bringing to the table bring me so much joy, so much joy. And I think part of the reason why is because we need as a field, fresh eyes all the time. Cause I think we all get stuck in our rut sometimes. And I think just having people who, you know, or don't have any preconceived notions about how this is supposed to go is so useful. So that makes me really happy. So what are you like, for instance, what kind of ideas are you hearing these fresh, these fresh eyes and mouths bring to the table? 
What's surprising you? Well, I'm going to own that I'm a very design and tech-based thinker in terms of dramaturgy. And mm-hmm. so I'm- I think designers make some of the best dramaturgs. Right? So I'm with you on that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm reaching a little bit into the Wayback Machine, but case in point, I had some students that did some devising work that ended up creating a, an, an entire group, their theater company now called Who's Lewis. They- are really pushing the boundaries of what is theater and what is film and what is immersive theater and what is, how do you think about space and place and storytelling if you're merging both sort of this, the theater and film worlds. And I just think that's so exciting. And I think also in terms of ideas and everyone should Google who's Lewis, if you get a chance, just because their work is a lot of fun. I don't know if they have anything running right now, but like one of the last pieces they ran was like this interactive thing where you could either go, they were running it out of their apartments and everyone who's in who's Lewis lived on the same apart in the same complex on the same hall. And essentially you could either physically go and travel through their spaces or you could actually travel through their spaces through the internet. And then they figured out to make, how to make ways where people who are coming in through the physical space could actually interact with people who are coming in through the virtual space. And it was just such a cool, cool, cool experiment. What else is making you optimistic? Yeah, uh, I think just my work at the Playwright Center is making me super optimistic because uh, back to the same thing, a lot of my, I, I work specifically with the Many Voices and the Jerome Fellows. And by the way, if anyone who's listening is a playwright, you should totally check out the fellowship programs that they have at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. Some They're just such great, amazing Number one, the Playwright Center is just amazing. Two, they're basically a service organization for playwrights. And so the the services that they offer, the fellowships that they offer, I mean, it's a whole entire group of people whose only job is to support playwrights and the plays they're trying to write right now. So just great organization. But to get into the specifics of it, you know, it's kind of the same thing. A lot of those, a lot of my playwrights right now are blurring form and function and so, like, I'm thinking about Lucas Beige, who's just one of my favorite plays. I actually encountered Lucas at the Kennedy Center in the MFA sort of showcase that they have there every year. I was in, I ended up being his dramaturg for a piece called 404 Not Found. And it was really getting into these amazing questions about surveillance technology and the internet. And it's got a little bit of a sci-fi edge because someone is jumping back and forth through time. But then it also has this sort of moral edge to it because what you end up finding out over the course of the play, and I'm not giving anything away, like the real stuff I'm not giving away. But like, you know, one of the premises of the play is that this person is going back and forth in time to fix something that they did. But they also know that every time they go back and forth in time to fix this thing, they end up killing someone. And so then the, the moral question at the heart of it is, are a few lives more precious than a, than an entire whole? Like if you can stop the destruction of man by just killing a few people, is that worth the risk? Especially considering like, you know, and this is the part where I'm almost getting close, too close to giving away some stuff, but ends up finding out that maybe someone a little too close to home, if you catch my drift, ends up being part of the collateral damage. You've just mentioned several really young, exciting artists who are blurring boundaries, doing exciting work. If you could wave a magic wand and changing 
an existing system that makes it harder for this type of work to reach an audience? What would you change? What would make it easier for these kind of reinventors of theater who are pushing the boundary? What would make it easier for them to get their work in front of their intended audience? Oh, that's oh man, we're getting into some we're getting into some systems right now. Oh uh, yeah. I warned you. <laughs> so what would make it easier? I think one, our general fields reliance or not even reliance, insistence on Aristotelian modes of storytelling becomes problematic sometimes because there are people who are telling brilliant stories that come from other traditions of storytelling that are not being given the proper due because people are trying to encounter it from an Aristotelian point of view as opposed to taking it for what it is and taking it from the traditions that they come from. So I think that's part of it. I think, especially as we're sort of, you know, quote unquote, coming out of the pandemic, I think there are a lot of places that don't want to do work by new artists because they just need to make money. Um, and so they're, you know, going, they're pulling on things like Shakespeare, et cetera. Not that there's anything wrong with Shakespeare. That's a whole nother, like that's a whole nother can of worms to open. And I actually love me some Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> Go Titus is my favorite one. Um, which probably says a lot about me as a human. But, yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I think capitalism really it's part of that. Just like, you know, I'm going to end up always pointing back to capitalism because it's always part of the problem. Like we don't have enough funding for the arts and therefore people are hesitant to quote unquote, take chances, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, honestly, because like every playwright at some point was a new playwright and someone took a chance. So there's that. I think also, you know, there's, there's a cultural competency lack also that's, you know, partially embedded in this question about like storytelling structures, but then, or this idea of storytelling structures, but then also, you know, as a, as a black woman, I think one of the things that people, for some reason, like majority white audiences love a play about downtrodden, enslaved black people. And like, that's not, where everyone is in terms of their storytelling. Like if I was going to, I don't write a whole lot of plays, but if I was going to sit down and write a play today, it wouldn't, it wouldn't sit around any enslaved people. Cause that's not where my brain is. And so I think there's just so many trends that we have to really, and like modes of unconscious bias and all sorts of stuff that we need to rid our entire field of somehow, some way. And I think there are places that are taking steps in order to do that, but we still have a long way to go as a larger field in terms of really encountering this and really doing something different and being different. You're reminding me of um, when Lydia Diamond's play Stick Fly was on Broadway, <sighs> which was, and you know, this is a while ago now, uh, and certainly there have been, there's been a new kind of brand of Black plays that are on Broadway now. But Stick Fly was, of course, a play about upper middle class, upper class African-Americans, Blacks in Martha's Vineyard, if I right. remember correctly. Yep. I, I like to teach that play, so I'm quite familiar with it. If I remember correctly, uh, white audiences and critics could <laughs> figure out what to make of it because right. it was, it didn't fit that cultural mold that they had made for black theater. Right. And I think the thing that's so interesting, and we even start to see, we're seeing playwrights push against that. Like I'm thinking about Brandon Jacob Jenkins in an Octoroon. And I'm thinking about James Imes, the most spectacularly lamentable trial of Miss Martha Washington, even plays by black 
artists right now, even if they include enslaved populations as part of their character list, are really sort of pushing against this idea of like the downtrodden slave. Like one of my favorite, like both Brandon Jacob Jenkins and James Imes have these amazing stage directions that are something akin to let's not lean into stereotypes of what enslaved black people are like during this time because you weren't there and neither was I. So, (laughs) so how would you know? How would you know? Um, So just play these people as people. (laughs) So you mentioned, but one thing that would be great, that would be important is, is for us to, for the field to look beyond Aristotelian modes of storytelling. But it seems to me our audiences have been trained to look for that. I, I was always frustrated when I worked in the theater that so many of your audiences seem to want to see TV on stage, basically. Right. How would theaters go about training their audiences to expect different kinds of storytelling? And is it what audiences really are hungering for, especially younger audiences? I think so. Uh, just to get into your first question, I think the only way to really actually train an audience to think about different modes of storytelling is just to present the different modes of storytelling. Like I don't think, I mean, I can write the most beautiful program notes in the entire wide world, but I think, you know, in a, in a field where really we're trying to show and tell simultaneously, I think it's harder to just preface and say this thing is different than really just saying, okay, let's just show you what the difference is. And this is the thing that's so interesting. Like, I feel like, you know, I was I was destined to be a dramaturg in some really weird way because, like, stories are just interesting to me. And so, like, I grew up reading all sorts of books from all different countries and from, you know, basically if, it, if it's been translated into English, I've read it. And then, like, once I got into my master's degree and my PhD, at that point, then anything that since I had to have a language requirement for both of those degrees, I went for French. And so basically a lot of stuff that's, you know, French I've read too. And I've also started learning, teaching myself Korean because I'm really just like low key or maybe even just high key fascinated with (laughs) Korean theater. So that's, that's a whole nother thing, but it's really about the exposure. It's really about the exposure. We have to say that these stories are a equally important as the stories that we're used to telling and then B saying, okay, yes, we're not used to stories unfolding in this way, but that doesn't matter. Like the question is, what are we supposed to take from it? And so maybe some of that to get back into your question about how do we train audiences? It's really about recalibrating, you know, like I think there's a lot of circular storytelling for lack of a better uh, shape because in some ways it's more like a, like a spiral sometimes in, in African modes of storytelling because it isn't about a point. It isn't about a beginning and a middle and an end. It's about what you're taking from the journey. (laughs) So it doesn't matter if the protagonist is changed at the end. It is more interested in poking you to see if you're changed at the end by like going through this story. And so, so basically taking plays on its own terms, really thinking about, I have a friend that, writes in a very sort of crystalline mosaic structure. And essentially what that boils down to is like, if you think about a mosaic and like how there's like this little tiny piece of a larger picture, like the way that she starts is she really starts by like creating almost little squares of stories that as they continue to build upon one another, there comes a point where you start to see like the little tiny picture and then you start to see the bigger picture and then you start to see the big, and the next thing you know, you have the whole thing in a view. 
And that's so amazing and so great because it's really challenging us to say like, you know, it's back to the same thing. What are we taking with us along the journey? How are we seeing the little milestones, the little pictures that then give us the larger picture at the end? And I just think that these are ways that in some ways we can get back into some old school things. Like when we talk about critical thinking skills, part of what you know, to me, part of critical thinking skills is really putting the puzzle pieces together. And I think, you know, those kinds of structures really ask us to like sit, retain information because we don't know what information is going to be useful or not useful later. So just holding on to as much of it as possible until we start to see what is unfolding in front of our eyes. And I think that is the thing that makes me excited that, you know, getting back into your even earlier question, like those kinds of storytelling narrative structures are really fascinating and interesting to me. And as I'm seeing more and more of them, I'm like, yes, give me more. <laughs> uh, so I have an unfair question for you. And I I'm actually glad I, I didn't send this to you in advance. This is Biggie. If you were handed the keys to your own theater, oh. what would it look like? And how would it operate? Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> if I was given my own space, I think I would reject like traditional proscenium place, first and foremost. But that's because my interests are A, technology-based. My interests are B, in um, creating varied experiences. Like I love theater. Like, I love immersive theater, but I know that's not everyone's bag either. And so, therefore, so you'd actually prefer not to inherit a proscenium space. So. I would, yeah, I would prefer okay. not to inherit a proscenium right. space. I would just love a big old room because that's the other thing. Like, then we can start playing with form and function of just the space generally. Like, what does it mean, for example, to have like a space that's just a room and we can carve out maybe even sections of the room to do things or have like, you know, we can just transform the space in whatever way that we need in order to do whatever it is we need to do then, and then scrap it and do something different for the next thing. Like I want that kind of flexibility. I also crave a community-based space because I think one of the things that makes it so hard for, you know, up and coming companies as well as, you know, just like artists is just to sometimes find space to like have a reading, to have a workshop, to do all these things. And so I want to, I want a space like, I don't, I, I mean, I, I'm going to own that, like, what what I also need besides someone just handing me some keys is, like, also many, many never-ending bags of money. Right. But, <laughs> okay, let's let's presume it's there for, for this, right? for the purposes of this. Yeah. Right. Then if that's the case, like, I would love to just have spaces where people can come and, like, just be, they can write, they can, they can live and they can to almost have like an artist type colony. Cause I think that's also a problem. Sometimes some of the best places you want to have your work done are in places that are ridiculously unaffordable as an artist. And like, you know, getting back into the larger problem. I mean, really the problem is like, you know, why are artists compensated so poorly? But like, I think it's a good middle step getting to, you know, as we tackle that problem, I think like, what would it mean to have artists in residence that aren't even artists in residence specifically because they have to produce something for me or for the organization? What if they were just there because they contribute to the culture of the space just by virtue of being there and like creating whatever their work is on their own? And I would love a space that's like multidisciplinary because I find that some of the best work comes out of people being pollinated by different areas when I talk to, like I'm a dramaturg, but when I talk to my designer friends, when I talk to my 
orchestral friends. When I talk to um, my visual artist friends, and I also do have a, a bit of a visual arts background, like when I talk to people who are outside of the things that I'm doing, I find that sparks in my head just fire, like all the synapses start firing. And so what does that mean if we just like really create a space that is just for art? That's what I want. I want people coming and going. I want people, I want, I like Yeah, laughing, I love, crying. I love then oh, that wow. even that the blurs of boundaries between participant and audience that yes. goes back and forth. Yes. And that mm-hmm. just seems so exciting to me in a way that like, now I really wish someone was just handing me some keys and bags, never ending bags of money. Cause I would totally <laughs> do that. But I mean, it's interesting because like, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about the playwright center is that they just bought a new space and that is the they are in conversation, like in deep, deep conversation with the artists that are in Minneapolis and St. Wow. Paul to really think about like how how do we create a space that is showing up for everybody? Let's turn to your role now as an educator and specifically right now as an educator to budding performing artists, because that's who who will be under your uh, your care. So you started just this past June, right? Uh, July 1st was my start date. So you're about to enter your first term with students correct, in this crazy time in our country. Yeah, Rona. <laughs> what do you most wish for your department and its teachers, professors to impart to these artist students as they go out into the world in these coming years? That's a good question. I feel like a lot of the skills in DLA, even though they're very practical, they're also just really good life skills. Like I say things like dramaturgy is life skills. I say understanding the science of the world around you gets you closer to being able to tell the stories around you. Like understanding just on a fundamental basic level how this world works just puts you in a really great position to ask the tough questions through your art, to do the tough things in your art. And so I think, at least specifically in DLA, I think our interest in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work is going to be really important moving forward. Because I think that's the thing. A lot of artists right now are not just sitting in one genre and not sitting in just one very specific area. Like, you know, I'm a dramaturg. And generally, that's what people know me as. But I also write plays on occasion. I also, you know, obviously I'm an educator. So I go into classrooms all the time. I also, I mean, there's so many other aspects to who I am. And those things help create the the artistically and like emotionally fulfilled person that I am. Part of the reason why is because like I am bringing in all these things that I am learning, reading about so into all of the things like I'm, I am interested in being a holistic person. I'm interested in being a global citizen. I am interested in all these things. And I think that's what DLA is really interested in as well. I, you know, I'm always asking questions about sustainability, both in terms of like fiscal, ecological, et cetera, like basically any way that you can dissect sustainability and how it intersects with the arts. I'm interested in those questions because I'm really about intergenerational thinking. How is the work that I'm creating now and the ways that we're going about creating work now, either helpful or harmful seven generations down the line. And these are things I think we all should be wrestling with. Like we cannot be so individualistic to be like, the only thing that matters is me here now. Because that that's just not fair to future generations. And it's not fair to our own art. Think about the possibilities of what we do with our art if we're willing to think seven generations down the line versus what happens if we're only caring about the here and the now. I think those conversations, I think civic engagement 
and, and I mean that on multiple levels, like how is the work that we are doing, uh, how does, how does it cross into things like, you know, how does a sense of design help you in terms of thinking about city planning? How does a sense of space and place allow you to think about architecture? And like, these are just all the things that I think we are interested in, but I'm also interested in civic engagement in terms of thinking about like, what does it mean to be in space? I think, you know, one of the things that's really important that has come out of the movement to give land acknowledgements, for example, hopefully when someone learns like who the indigenous people, the original caretakers of the land are, A, hopefully one, they go do some research and find out more about them if they don't know who the original caretakers of the land are. But then also like getting into like what I was talking about earlier in terms of the capitalism of it all, like the other thing that we have to reckon with is how many sets of people have been displaced in order to have this building here and now. You know, I think about that just even in terms of where UNCSA sits. Like one of the first things I started doing was digging into the history of like, what is this neighborhood that this school is sitting in? Who used to be here before the school was here? What, how, how did they acquire this land? This is all really important questions to ask. And obviously I can't go back and change time in any way, shape or form, but maybe the art that, I'm, that I do in the future can hearken to the history of this space and place and really ask people to think about that as we engage with space and place. I love that. Essentially creating, because if you're if you're creating students who know how to ask the right questions, you're right. essentially creating a lot of mini dramaturgs, which yes! I love. And it's life skills. Dramaturgy is life skills. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Martine and read a longer version of the interview, please visit uncsa.edu slash artrestart. We've got great guests lined up for you, so please subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. And as always, we appreciate it when listeners rate us on their podcast platform of choice, since it makes it much easier for the podcast to reach new ears. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pier Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening. <laughs>